Welcome back to Coming Up for Air with hosts Dominique Simone Levine, Laurie McDougall, and Kayla Solomon. This podcast is produced with love by the Allies and Recovery team in solidarity with our listeners. Come in and sit with us for conversations on the most pertinent topics for families navigating a loved one's addiction. We created this podcast along with the learning modules and discussion blog in support of you. We salute the work you are doing and your dedication to helping your loved one find a way through. And now, coming up for air. So, Kayla, Mm -hmm. what do you think about catastrophizing and ruminating thoughts? Oh, they're kind of overwhelming. Okay, so let's backtrack a little bit. So let us define catastrophizing, okay? Because catastrophizing to me is when you are in a situation and you go to the worst possible scenarios, okay? It could be anything. It could be any kind of situation, but if you are making things the worst in your head, you're going to, oh my God, this is the most horrible, worst possible thing that could possibly happen. And you're going there on a regular basis, or that's how you think that's catastrophizing. I'd like to kind of piggyback on what you're saying. I think catastrophizing is even a step further You're going to the worst case scenario, but you're also adding your own bit of drama and elevating it and making it more intense without even knowing it. I want to I want to put it out there. I think it's normal. And I I put the word normal in quotes because what the heck is normal? But but I think it's very normal and very human of people to catastrophize and to add this element of drama in just making it more and more intense by adding more and more drama. And I think with substance use disorder, when you're dealing with someone with SUD, it spirals and it just gets worse. And and there's more drama and more intensity and more over, everything is so much more overwhelming, which leads to things like isolation and fear of sharing what's going on within your house or you know, what's going on with you and your loved one. And so to me, catastrophizing is this, it's a monster. It's a big monster. Yeah, because the other thing is when you're catastrophizing, I think what happens is there's also a belief that you're in the worst situation possible. Nobody could ever understand because yours is so bad and this is so terrible. And in the 12-step programs, they call it terminal uniqueness, where you're so different and your situation is so different and your loved one is so different and so much worse than anybody else that nobody could ever understand what you're thinking and feeling. I think that most of us who do this, we don't think that we're catastrophizing. We just think we're trying to prepare ourselves so that we can handle this horrible thing that is obviously going to happen or we're trying to prevent from happening. But it doesn't feel like drama to us. It just feels like, Given the circumstances, of course, this is going to happen, or this is a very strong possibility. And then what happens is we get into this mode of, I have to make sure it doesn't happen. I have to do whatever it takes not to happen. And then we're we're in the story with our loved one. We place ourselves in there and we get swept away in their very intense undertow. So also talk about ruminating thoughts, because... I do think the ruminating thoughts comes out of the catastrophizing. 
Okay, so ruminating thoughts, other also known as perseveration, means that you have these usually negative thoughts in your head. Ruminating and perseverating doesn't usually happen in like, oh, things are great, everything's good, everything's going to work out. That's not where most of us land in the land of rumination. What we do is we focus on these terrible things and we roll them around and repeat them and keep going through them in our heads and. What's interesting is that to me, it's like a snowball. As it slides down the hill, you add all this unbelievable information into it. And the snowball keeps getting larger and larger and larger. And I think they lead to avalanches because then you're buried underneath this pile of snow. You can't breathe. You feel like you have no choices. And I think if you could get rescued, that would be nice. But you're trying to rescue the other person while you're getting buried alive at the same time. And people who are buried in avalanches are not really helpful to other people who are buried in avalanches. And that to me is the the identification of how you look at rumination and perseveration. You are piling up this negativity and the other person's negativity is already there. And so you're sharing in this negativity of what horrible things that can happen. And what it feels like to you is not rumination or perseveration or making it into the worst possible scenario, it feels like reality to you. So it it justifies that thought process because it feels like, oh, this is very real. This is very possible. So of course I'm going to go there. I have another question for you. I, I'm hoping we can talk about with this idea of perseverating and ruminating thoughts. I think a lot of family members that I work with or that come into to the meetings are stuck in ruminating thoughts and don't even recognize it. Yes. Right. So I hear a lot of someone will go on a rant about their loved one on and on and on. I'll hear the story. We'll talk about, okay, calming down our response. How can we respond? I'll try and help them to focus on the things that they can do. And then as soon as we're done having this discussion, it's right back to ruminating. I I can hear them thinking because the words coming out of their mouth is I'm right back to ruminating thoughts about how difficult things are with my loved one. And how am I going to solve this problem? Where am I going to go with it? And not as nice as what I just said, (laughs) you know, more all about, but they thought this way and they were saying this and they were doing that and they were, you know, and it's like, okay, how do you help a family? Like, How do you recognize it in yourself that you're actually the ruminating thoughts are there and how do you stop it? First, assume that you're ruminating, even if you don't think you are, because you cannot change something that you cannot see. And so assume if you're dealing with a loved one who's using or is has problematic behavior that there's no way that you are the one of those people that is not ruminating. You're ruminating. You're ruminating, you're perseverating, you're going to that place. And I always believe that with problems, if things are problematic, the only time that we're willing to change them is if we could see them and identify them. Because you can't change something that you can't see. So instead of it being the air that you breathe, which hopefully you can't see, it becomes something that you look at and you say, wait a second, this is actually not helpful This is not helpful to me, certainly. And it is actually, contrary to what I believe, it's not helping my loved one. Because I think that people 
believed that they could think their way out of situations, that they could strategize and plan and come up with all these brilliant ideas about how to change the situation. And I no longer believe that. And, you know, that's the thing I love about craft and allies in recovery is that you look at what doesn't work. And that is a tool that does not work. That is the way of being that actually gets you gets you in trouble, makes the person that you care about, you know, uncomfortable. And also it's very invasive when their story becomes your story all the time. I think that's disrespectful. You're them and everything that they do has such a large impact on you. They feel guilty and ashamed and responsible for how you're doing. And they can't change that, but you can. And we talk about this actually in rest meetings. You know, we talk about how actually what a burden it is to put on the loved one to to be the person that determines how I'm feeling and thinking in the day. So if your behavior changes, I will feel better and I will think better. And that is so unfair to the other person to expect them to help manage what you are thinking and what you are feeling. So we we talk about this a lot. But also what I find interesting is one, I think your idea of saying with that internal voice, hey, I do have ruminating thoughts. I'm back to ruminating thoughts. What are my ruminating thoughts right now? Just assume that you are, that you're yes. having them. Because actually, I like you said, it's a human characteristic. So just assume, uh, I know I'm having ruminating thoughts here. I'm not recognizing it, but I know I'm having ruminating thoughts here. And then start trying to meet it out. What are my ruminating thoughts? What am I thinking about over and over again? I also think, and I know this is going to sound crazy, but I really love the section on the Allies and Recovery website on no negative talk. Because I actually think once you start to change your language, the catastrophizing reduces. I know it sounds crazy, but that's why no negative talk is very uncomfortable when you first start doing it, but no negative talk is the first step in changing your language around what's going on uh, with your loved one with SUD. And just that, so just taking, I think those two steps is gonna start to make a, a difference in whether you're catastrophizing or minimizing the catastrophizing and minimizing the ruminating thoughts. Right. And I, I also think that the way you could identify if you're having ruminating thoughts is if you keep thinking the same thing. I mean, that's literally the definition of it. If you keep recycling those same thoughts or like modify them, <laughs> they might get modified slightly, but it's the same thing. Oh my God, what if this happens? And what if this happens? If, if you're in that kind of anxiety-based thinking, you know you're ruminating. So that's the identification of it. So step one is you start to see it and you start to notice that you're doing it. That's the step. It takes a long time sometimes because anxiety feels so realistic. It doesn't feel like it's a thing that we're doing. It just feels like this is realistic. So you identify that as a problem. Then the second thing that what you're saying is if you start shifting your thinking from negative to positive, 
you'll see how that just rubs it. It doesn't fit if you're ruminating in a negative way. And so you're having to start changing the actual thought like, okay, let me expect the best. Let me assume that everything's okay right now. Let me have some faith. What can I do for myself right now as opposed to think about the other person? And I also think a big part of this is to separate the what we always say, how are you doing? And you answer how your loved one is doing. That's the first place. If you can't say, I'm tired, I'm exhausted, I feel drained, I feel overwhelmed, I feel anxious, but you start describing the other person's behavior, that's how you could identify this. Because that's not you, that's them. You know, I also want to add a few pieces in there too, because I think it's important for people to understand that when you start bringing in these other thoughts, or let's say you don't have to think the other thoughts, you can just start asking yourself questions that bring in these thoughts. The positive thoughts? Yeah, changing those thoughts. I don't call them positive. I call them more like realistic thoughts because I think it's really important for people to understand that it is doing this is not comfortable. You are not going to change the catastrophizing and ruminating thoughts so that you feel phenomenal. That's not what's going to happen because the ruminating thoughts are still going to be there. But what it will do is it will bring you to a more manageable place where you can manage your thoughts and you can manage what you're feeling. And also it's okay to ask questions because when we catastrophize, we often place that on our loved one's behavior, right? Our catastrophe is our loved one's behavior. So I also feel it's important to ask yourself internally, why is my loved one behaving this way? Is it really because they're trying to hurt me? Is it really because they're trying to just manipulate me? Maybe they are trying to manipulate me, but maybe it's because they're craving their substance. And that's a deeper thing than just trying to be deceitful towards me. That's a much deeper thing. And when you start to understand that, it can help you to calm down a little bit and be like, okay, okay, I need to respond differently because they're not doing this to me. So what I would say is that the tool that you're talking about is what I call it, don't take it personally, okay? That nothing is personal. They're not doing this to you. They're not doing this to spite you, even if that's what the words are. What happens is that they have a job to do, which is get their substance. They have a job to do, which is keep doing the behavior that they're doing because they don't want to change. Their job is to keep going with what they're doing and you're getting in their way. It's not that they're mad at you, although they might be. It's not that they're being disrespectful or they're trying to harm you or they're trying to lie to you. It's just that that's the package that goes along with getting the substances. There's a whole set of behaviors. It's kind of like we say this when somebody gets sober, but they don't change their behavior. That's the expression of dry drunk or they have using behavior. And basically it's the behaviors that go along with using, which is lying, not speaking the entire truth, not being accountable for behavior, not engaging in productive activities, not having good communication. Those are all using behaviors, even if somebody's not using. And so you could stop using and still have those behaviors. And that's very problematic because then you're in this life cycle behavior that does not work and doesn't bring you 
the things that you need to be to feel good about yourself. But the other thing I want to say is that so not taking it personally is a very big tool. And what we're talking about here is that you have power over your thoughts and your behavior, which I don't think another a lot of people realize. I think people feel victimized by the situation and also by their loved ones, where it's like, if only this would happen, I would be okay. If only this would happen, I wouldn't be doing this. But that is not a true statement. The true statement is, every moment of your day, you actually have power over and control. Number one, over your behavior. Number two, over your thoughts. And so what we're talking about is how do you take your power back? How do you take the control over your thoughts and behavior back? And I'm a very big proponent of what I call the refresh button. So you're doing the thing that you always do. Okay. You're thinking terrible thoughts. You're ruminating. You're recycling thoughts. You're going to the, you're awfulizing, as you say, where you're going to the worst possible scenarios. And what we want to do is start catching ourselves and like, oh, look, I'm doing that thing. That's the biggest gift you could give yourself is to start having this kind of observer self that says, oh my God, I'm doing this thing. And that's the beginning of you changing your behavior because then what I call the reset or the refresh button is you stop. Then you take out the other tools that you have to shift that. So I really like this idea. I like this idea of the refresh button. And I want to kind of throw a couple of added pieces in there. I think it's important to understand that we actually don't have control over what I call initial thoughts. Those initial thoughts are preconceived ideas and beliefs about a situation, typically already established in your brain. Something happens, you have these initial thoughts, they kind of already exist. But what you do have power over is bringing in other thoughts. So grab control of that piece of it. Grab control, become empowered. I can think about other things. I can really think this whole situation through. The other thing is, is I love this idea of you're an observer of yourself. You're an observer of yourself. You're an observer of what you're thinking and what you're feeling which also starts to delineate between who you are and your loved one is. Mm -hmm. And I also think it's important to become an observer of your loved one and not a mind reader. Because I think in the ruminating thoughts and catastrophizing and letting those initial thoughts and preconceived ideas and beliefs and those initial feelings, those are us actually thinking we can mind read. We think we know what our loved ones are thinking and we don't. And so instead of doing that mind reading, I know, I know he hates me. I know she, she's trying to manipulate me. I know that this is what's going on. Instead, take a step back, observe yourself, but also start observing your loved one. And it kind of delineates you as human beings. I am now not my loved one and myself. And my loved one is not a part of me and driving my behavior. I'm going to kind of pull it apart a little bit. I'm going to let them be who they are. And I'm going to work on who I am. I also think that what you're describing is space, okay, which is very underrated, which is the space between two people. That's essential. And if you're 
in somebody's head, which is scary. It's like, I think about that. I used to want to be a mind reader. And then I realized, no, I don't really want to know. <laughs> I don't want to know what everybody's thinking. And, you know, I'm good at reading people, but I'm also not that good at reading people. I think even those of, and that's what I do for a living. And I still, you know, I used to presume I knew what people were thinking. And then I realized, now, why don't I just ask? I just ask now. It's like, you know, I might have a thought or a feeling or a, an impression. So then I'm going to ask. It's like, but it's not, oh, you're mad right now, aren't you? Because that does sound like a question, but it is not a question. If you want to piss somebody off, say, oh, I know you're mad right now. You will be right because that's infuriating. Right. <laughs> so it's that kind of thing. And I think that that's what we do all the time is that we're in people's business and then we wonder why they get mad at us. Nobody wants somebody in their business. People want space. They want respect. And we think we're helpfully in their business, but we're still in their business. So the work that we need to do is to step back, separate, give space, allow the other person to speak their truth. And we have to believe them even if we don't, okay? Because their word is all we've got to work on. And then we can't say, well, you know, did you use? No, I did not. I know you used. Like, that's not how it works. You just have to be with that and start moving things around so that you become somebody that they do want to tell the truth to. But I think a lot of the folks that we see walking into Allies in Recovery are so over-involved and so enmeshed and so in everybody's business and trying to mind read and trying to anticipate and trying to prevent that we don't give the other person, we believe that if that other person changes, we're going to be okay. So we're very invested. We're not only trying to save their life, but we're trying to save our own because if only they would be okay, so would we. But that's not how this works. They need to be the masters of their destiny. They need to be the decision makers in their life. Our work with craft is to give them the space and the respect and the connection so that they get to make those decisions. And as the support system to give yourself the space too, because oftentimes we don't feel we deserve it, right? We don't feel we deserve it. We feel like, oh, I can't, I can't. And so we're stuck in this cycle of catastrophizing, isolating, ruminating thoughts, not knowing where to go with it, not being able to identify. And then we end up in a difficult situation again, which then we just catastrophize. And then we just have ruminating thoughts. And, and it just, it's the same playbook over and over and over again. And what we're saying here is take the simple step. The first step, the simple step is assume you're ruminating. Always. Assume you're ruminating. And now what? Take the simple step. Start with no negative talk, just eliminating no negative, that negative talk that you verbalize. To me, that's like ruminating as well, only verbalizing it. It's putting it out there. So stop with the, with the negative talk and assume you're rumina ruminating and just start there. Yeah. And, and then refresh, which means that, oh, I'm doing that thing. And then you start doing an experiment of what works when I'm doing that. It's going to be different for you. For me, it's like take a walk and listen to a podcast. It could be that you do a yoga class. It could be that you call a friend. It could be that you go to an online group at the moment. It could be anything. But notice that what we're talking about is doing something for yourself. 
which is usually not on the list. But if you do something for yourself, that's a way to break the rumination. Doing something that feels good and nurturing and caring and meaningful to you is how you bust out of the rumination. And it becomes a practice because it's not like you're never going to do it again. It's just that you want a toolbox that you can whip out when it happens and then you get to use it. And I'm going to, I'm going to verify just what you said. (laughs) And I'm going to say, yes, you will continue to do this. It's a journey. It is a process. It took me a long time to do it. And even now I tend to fall back into old habits and I have to be fully aware of it. I have to really still work at it. So expect it to be difficult. Expect it to not be an easy thing to do. Be forgiving of yourself, be understanding of yourself, and just challenge yourself to make a couple of tiny little baby steps to keep moving forward. Become empowered. Well, I'm going to add one thing because it was just on the news that they did this research about treating anxiety. And this is anxiety, by the way. That's what we're talking about with other words. And what they found is that people who engage in very regular mindfulness-based practices like meditation and mindfulness-based stress reduction, which you could do in classes, you could do online, you could download apps. People who have done it regularly had the same responses that people that were taking medications and sometimes better because they didn't have any of the side effects. So meditation is a huge, huge way of doing this. Awesome. Okay. So can you give us a quick wrap up? Oh, Lori, I thought you summed it up, but I'm going to say it again. I'm going to just repeat back what you said, which is basically, if you find yourself getting swept away in the negative undertow of what's going to happen, how do I prevent this? And you're in your loved one's business and you're repeating it and you're going over it and you're perseverating about it. The number one tool is to step back and notice that you're doing it. That's number one. Number two is that what you do is then decide that you're going to shift it, okay? And one of the first shifts that you can make is start by no negative talk, which means that you can't focus on the negative and you have to go to another place with this. And then the other part of it is to stop, reset, refresh, find something that is going to soothe your soul, soothe your system, and allow your thoughts to shift, meditation being a great one, but you will find a set of tools that you could do to get out of that that headspace and do something else. And the more you keep this practice going, the better you're going to be at this. You're going to be terrible at the beginning. And then as you do it over and over again, you're going to get really good at it. And that's the goal. And then it will happen less. It's going to happen, but you'll have a sense of power and control over this at some point. Thank you, Kayla. I will talk to you next week. Great. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode of Coming Up for Air spoke to you. If you're listening in today on a podcast platform that isn't the Allies member site, please take a moment to give us a five-star rating. This helps others find the show more easily. If you have a suggestion for a new topic or a guest for the show, please reach out through the Contact Us form on alliesinrecovery.net. Special thanks to our hosts, our guests, and our production team.